Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 104 with Chris Yates. At my job after Ellie, I started working through the pandemic and, um, you know, basically, in a nutshell, the same thing that happened to me while I was practicing law started to happen to me while I was cooking was that basically just, again, burning out. And that was when I really started to realize, like, hey, when I stopped practicing law, I'd sort of told myself the story about how, you know, lawyering isn't for me. I'm just like in the wrong profession. And like, this is a bad match for my personality. And when I realized that the same thing was happening to me while I was cooking, um, I realized well, maybe this problem is internal and not external. You know, working in high-end independent restaurants is sort of this all-consuming, you know, lifestyle and a career. And uh, you know, chasing accolades and Michelin stars and James Beard awards, you know, that was sort of the, the place I had put myself in and it just, it was, it was destroying me from the inside out slowly. This is the chefs without restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, my guest is Chris Yates. If you follow the Washington, D.C. food scene, you might know him from his time at the Dabney, Ellie, or ABC Pony. What you might not know was that he was an attorney before he was a chef. You'll get to hear that story and find out what he's doing next. With Yates Law, Chris will be providing operational expertise and business and legal strategy to both new and old business operators in an affordable and streamlined manner. And this isn't just limited to restaurants. If you're a personal chef, caterer, food truck operator, etc., you still might have some legal or consulting needs. Chris is looking at different fee structures, and it might be more affordable than you'd think. And because this is a food show, we also talk about some of his favorite things to cook, as well as his love for soy sauce. We also talk about the issues going on in food service today. You know, uh, we kind of dive into anxiety and stress, uh, work-life balance, labor shortages, pay issues, and just general working environments and kitchens. So I think this is something that everyone can relate to. And, you know, myself, even as a personal chef, I've had to hire a lawyer to um, work out my trademark. I know some of you might need help with contracts. So I think this episode's going to be very beneficial to a lot of people. And I think Chris is a great guy, and I just really enjoy talking to him. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And now a word from our sponsor, Savory Jobs. Are you shocked at what it costs to post a job ad? Instead, imagine a job site for restaurants only, where you could post as many jobs as you wanted, and it only cost 50 bucks. Not for each job you post, but for all the jobs you post, for an entire year. Well, my sponsor, Savory Jobs, has made that a reality. They've launched a revolutionary, easy-to-use job site just for restaurants. 
and it only costs $50 for unlimited job posts for an entire year. Plus, for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVERY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. So go to SaveryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the restaurant industry. Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Join the revolution at SaveryJobs.com and remember to use code SAVERY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much and have a great week. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Chris, happy to be here. Glad we could catch up. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I think it's been um, a couple of years. I remember chatting with you at Ellie over lunch um, back in... 2018 or 2019. Yeah, you have that weird COVID year where it's like, huh, like I really haven't seen anyone in a year. Well, so briefly, I guess I'd say you're a lawyer turned chef turned lawyer helping chefs. Is that about right? Yes. That's interesting. You know, I didn't even know that you were a lawyer before. I just knew you as a chef kind of out and about in the DC area. So Kind of walk us through that. I'd love to hear like a bit of backstory. You went to school for law and then got into cooking. How did that uh, end up happening? Sure. So I got the cooking bug, I guess, back when I was um, in college. Uh, I remember reading, I think it was Ming Tsai's cookbook. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, this is nothing like the food that I eat in restaurants when I go out. And that's like one just kind of memory that pops out. But I remember like cooking dinner for my college roommates pretty frequently. And I went to school. I went to college for political science. And um, I remember meeting with my guidance advisor. And we were talking about, you know, future careers for people with political science degrees. And he's basically like, well, you can either become a lawyer or you can spend another eight years and get a PhD and basically become a political scientist and a statistician. And I knew right there and then that I, there was no way I was going to, you know, do eight years of graduate level math. So um, I decided to go to law school. I wasn't the greatest when I'm more currently for that matter, uh, applying for putting in applications for college deadlines or graduate school deadlines, never my I was never particularly strong at it. So anyway, I basically did what I had always done at that point and decided to apply to law school basically at the last minute. And I didn't get in anywhere. And I was waitlisted at one school. And I decided that law school probably wasn't in the cards anyway. So um, I was going to pursue this thing about cooking professionally and get a line cook job and see how it went. So my first garden manger position at this country club down in South Jersey. I went to a New Jersey state school down in Glassboro, New Jersey. And I was there for a month, I think, when I got the letter from Northeastern Law that I'd been accepted off the wait list. And I was like, all right, I'm putting in my three days notice because they say I have to be there by Monday if I want this position in school. And so I moved up to Boston and went to Northeastern. I graduated in 2009. I pretty much knew right away upon, you know, entering law school that my interest was being in a courtroom. You know, the thought of like representing banks and big companies didn't really appeal to me. Um, I just wanted to do something exciting because I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie, although I didn't realize it at the time. 
So um, I graduated from law school. I'm, I moved back to New Jersey and I started practicing in New Jersey um, primarily as a criminal defense attorney. I mean, I'm handling criminal offenses, everything from traffic offenses to DWIs to, you know, serious felony cases, not quite murder cases because you don't usually get those till you're like 10 to 20 years into your career, but, you know, pretty serious um, felony cases where clients were looking at 10 to 20 years in prison. Um, yeah, so I did that for five years. Um, was fairly successful. I mean, it was fulfilling, but I was also burning out as it happened. And I didn't really know at the time that was what was happening. But I, de- I mean, looking back now, definitely what happens. And so, you know, that kind of like gradually got to a point where I just didn't want to be at work. Um, didn't want to do much other than like watch television or get off my couch. So I, at the time I was practicing with a, I had like kind of a dual situation going on. I had my, my own small firm solo practice. Um, and I was also working for another attorney doing some work. Um, so I, I wound down my practice. I basically, you know, finished out my cases. And I had a old Paul Drummond that lived down in Greenville, South Carolina. And him and I had talked at that point for a number of years about opening a bar and restaurant or a bar or a food truck or something in the hospitality industry. You know, I was very interested in food. He was very interested in beverage. Um, and he had kind of had this thankless nine to five corporate job that he was looking to get out of. I was looking to start practicing law. So it seemed like a natural fit. So I moved down there and got my first serious line cooking job. And, you know, did that for basically like a year before I found a nicer restaurant in town that was like making their own bread and making their own pasta and their own charcuterie. And that's when I really started to think seriously about it as a career. I mean, I knew I wanted to pursue it as a career, but I was getting like a sense of satisfaction and advancement that I felt like I hadn't gotten when I was practicing law. So I stayed at that place for uh, another year and a half. And at some point I reconnected with a friend of mine, a female friend of mine from law school. And we started kind of dating long distance, but she was living here in Washington, DC. And I was living in Greenville, South Carolina. And we started dating, kind of going back and forth to see one another. And uh, at some point we started talking about me moving in with her. And for me, it was like a, a natural personal and career progression. I kind of wanted to get back to the mid-Atlantic area. I'm from New Jersey, like I said, and uh, I knew I kind of wanted to live in like a larger city. And I had basically been working at the best restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina, and there wasn't a whole lot of upward mobility, like a more complicated restaurant or like a tasting menu only restaurant for me to go work. I basically would have had to stay to the place that I was at and wait for a sous chef or a chef de cuisine to move along and then potentially take their position. I was also earning like $11 an hour in South Carolina and it's a line cook job. So uh, there was a financial motivation as well to like move to a bigger city with um, more plentiful job options. Um, so that's what I did. And that was back in um, 2016. And I, my first job I got was at the Dabney uh, after that, I, I started running the charcuterie program at, um, at Blue Duck Tavern. And shortly after that, opened Ellie. And, you know, at my job after Ellie, I started working through the pandemic. And, um, 
you know, the, basically, in a nutshell, the same thing that happened to me while I was practicing law started to happen to me while I was cooking was that basically just, again, burning out. And th that was when I really started to realize, like, hey, when I stopped practicing law, I'd sort of told myself the story about how, you know, lawyering isn't for me. I'm just like in the wrong profession. And like, this is a bad match for my personality. And when I realized that the same thing was happening to me while I was cooking, um, I realized well, maybe this problem is internal and not external. Do you think you got burned out because of the pandemic? Like if things, if that didn't happen, do you think you'd still be cooking or, because I mean, that's been a really hard year plus for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I was starting to burn out before the pandemic. The pandemic just kind of stepped on the gas for me. I think for a lot of the reasons that, you know, uh, before before today, I listened to like a couple episodes of your show and like, for example, Matt Jennings, um, and a couple other people that have been on your show, like had I'm having very similar experiences to what they were talking about, you know, working in high end independent restaurants is sort of this all consuming, you know, lifestyle and a career and uh, you know, chasing accolades and Michelin stars and James Beard awards, you know, that was sort of the, the place I had put myself in and it just, it was, it was destroying me from the inside out slowly. Um, and then when COVID happened, I mean, it all just kind of got ratcheted up, right? I mean, I was working 70 and 80 hour weeks instead of 60 hour weeks. And I was working six and seven days instead of five to six days and um, seeing my family even less and less, except, you know, my parents are in their 70s. So um, it came with like the added weight of knowing that there's this deadly pandemic and my parents are in this high risk category and I couldn't necessarily see them, you know, in person. So, yeah, I think it was it was going to happen one way or the other. So now you want to work with helping restaurants and people in the food industry on the legal side. So when did you kind of put those two together? I was celebrating a birthday party uh, at Sun Cinema in Mount Pleasant, uh, celebrating a birthday for a, a friend and wound up talking to another attorney who had spent a pretty good amount of time in, in the front of the house. And she was the one that kind of planted a little seed in my head that slowly started to grow and grow over the next like two years and you know I had been at work I, when I started to take on these like upper level management roles I was increasingly applying skills that were coming from like the lawyer's part of my brain like analyzing P&L information thinking strategically about the menu and you know, how we could use that to boost profits and reduce costs and labor, you know, how we could strategically market, you know, a new offering, things like that. And I was getting more fulfillment out of that basically than I was with my day-to-day -day cooking tasks. So all those things kind of were happening at once. And it was just, just this, I wanted some free time from work to do things other than cook and think about cooking as exciting. And as much as I love them, I realized, you know, there's more to it than this. And, you know, I slowly started to realize that I was so woefully unequipped to deal with the everyday stresses of being a chef um, and being a lawyer. And, and perhaps it could have been any career at that point, but 
it's not something that's taught in colleges. It's not something that's taught in law school. And I think I seemed personally, you know, very susceptible to stress. And I'm 37. I, I had never developed solid stress coping skills. And, you know, I realized that there was a need for that in restaurant management, basically. And so I, my thinking was I could provide this very concrete legal product or legal service, um, but also, you know, kind of like a hybridized service where, you know, that those legal recommendations are, are essentially informed by operational expertise and like, you know, an understanding of the business and also understanding how my own experience is burning out. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's a better way to run your business. I mean, you know, that's a simple way of saying it. It was anxiety driven in the kitchen, but it didn't have to be that way. And, you know, you can be intense and you can cook at an extremely high level and you can execute, you know, Michelin level and James Beard, you know, level food, whatever that means. Um, That's probably a conversation for another podcast, but, you know, without making yourself so stressed out that you don't want to go to work anymore. Well, there's been a lot of talk recently about problematic kitchen culture, uh, poor benefits, now a staffing shortage, but change needs to start from the top. Are operators open to changing this or is it a little uh, too little too late? I mean, I think the operators, the ones out there that are screaming about how $300, you know, unemployment supplements are going to be the things that put them out of business. You know, I think those are going to be the ones that die. I think that's more indicative of an attitude at the top of, of, of their organization and, and of their management skills than it is like, you know, an actual analysis of what's happening and a, a reflection of their anxiety, essentially. I think I'm seeing lots of reason for hope. And a lot of that is like sort of the old guard that don't get it, seem to be dying out. And then you see chefs from, you know, younger generations that just embrace these things as normal everyday elements of life and, you know, having a job and a career and and they're implementing them in, in business strategies and employment compensation systems that uh, actually value their staff and the restaurant, those restaurants seem to be staffed and, you know, poised to flourish over the next six months to a year. So do you have a target customer? You know, I'm looking to work with people, perhaps chefs and restaurateurs at Old Guard that maybe don't have the skills and the toolbox to perhaps confront the problems that are now becoming, you know, impossible to not confront. And basically just giving them some operational expertise and knowledge to navigate those situations. I'm looking to help restaurateurs of a, and, and chefs of a younger generation who perhaps are doing their own solo project for the first time and want to use strategic thinking and tech to kind of deliver their legal solutions and some consulting and management solutions, you know, in as affordable and streamlined and efficient a way as possible. Yeah, you said affordable. I mean, when I hear lawyer, I think of something that's crazy expensive and food service operators are notoriously frugal, uh, you know, so I'm sure that's maybe a barrier. Is that something you've thought about? I'm sort of experimenting with different fee models. You know, I think 
flat transparent fees for a lot of these things is a, is, a, is a solution for a lot of people. I think everyone's terrified that like the retainer model in, you know, in the hospitality and restaurant setting, I don't think works unless it's a, you know, a multi-unit operation that has recurring legal needs like on a weekly, if not monthly basis. And by the way, what I mean by retainer model is like, here's $10,000. I don't know what I'm, what legal needs I'm going to need, but I know I'm going to need them. You know, small restaurants, independent restaurants are not going to, that $10,000 could be payroll for a week. Um, you know, it could be a, a, a sizable amount of inventory depending on the size of your restaurant. So I think, you know, using a retainer model is, is it's not where I'm at. Um, an arrangement that I'm exploring is I'm calling it outside general counsel for small restaurants. Traditionally, that hasn't been something that restaurants, I think, can afford, but it's like kind of a hybrid subscription model where basically they'll pay a monthly fee, say $1,000, $2,000, and will essentially develop an ongoing strategy, business and legal strategy for the next six months to a year for you to tackle various things. Like, you know, you need an HR system, but perhaps it doesn't need to be implemented for a few more months until you actually have staff. So while we're waiting for you to step up, we can address, you know, licensing issues and things that are more pressing. So that's one thing I've been kind of knocking around and experimenting with, with some clients. Well, what about all the changes that came about during the pandemic? You know, you have all these things like, whether it be the to-go cocktails or, having, you know, kind of taking over the sidewalk with a parklet for dining. I'm sure some of that's going to stay, some of it's going to go away. And obviously, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So are you staying on top of those kind of things? And what are you seeing there? Yeah, I am. I mean, I saw yesterday Uber's announcing this um, to-go liquor program that they're rolling out in Canada. Um, the week before that, Andrew Cuomo decided overnight that they were going to rescind the to-go liquor program in New York City. Honestly, those are like kind of my the things I think are bread and butter. They they're not labor intensive for me to you know give business and strategy advice to clients on. It just requires me to basically you know read the news and stay up on current trends, which isn't all that difficult for me. And you know, it's there are things that can really set a client's mind at ease, like. Um, you know, I think just for a restaurateur to hear that, sure, you can rely on this alcohol to go program being around for at least six months. You know, I think that's the kind of clarity that restaurateurs are looking for right now because they don't have any clarity, I feel like, beyond like the next week on a lot of these things. So, yeah, absolutely being informed on those topics and like just having stress free conversations with clients about them and thinking about how they can maneuver around them. And do you foresee maybe even working with, you know, like I'm a personal chef, there's a lot of caterers, there are food trucks. Are you targeting only restaurants for work or do you think you could also kind of work with people who are outside of traditional restaurants? Yes, I can help people out. You know, uh, chefs without restaurants are definitely a model client. You're going to have issues with trademarking. You're going to have issues with licensing. You may have issues with, you know, contract issues, you know, might not be as involved as a a small unit restaurant, but there's still absolutely like legal needs there. For example, I did a, it's like a a flat fee of under a thousand dollars, basically for a form contract 
but I don't just like send you a Word document and send you on your way. There's some attorney consultation time that basically explains to you how it works so that you know, you're not just getting a one-shot contract, but you're getting something that's easily modifiable, you know, across multiple engagements. So, you know, you as a personal chef, you have a contract for, I assume, like, you know, doing a private dinner, let's say, but let's say a client wants to hire you for menu or recipe development or something like that, you know, providing a legal product that can be, that can cover both of those and giving you some enough education to modify for your own reasons. Well, I think a lot of us now are getting into uh, much more bigger things. You know, as my brand continues to grow, I have companies reaching out to me to do brand deals and endorsements and partnerships. And, you know, I'm getting contacted all the time and they want to know my terms. It's like, I don't know any of that stuff. And as I look to grow and take on you know, sponsors for the podcast and things of that nature. It's like, well, I don't really have like a lawyer. So someone's got to look over that stuff for me. Precisely. One thing that's come out of the pandemics is that, you know, you kind of mentioned that you came at it from a different angle, but chefs, you know, it's more than, more than ever. I feel like it's capable of chefs are capable of having a culinary career that is not tied to a fixed physical location, like a independent restaurant. And there's still, you know, their services are in demand for, you know, various things, whether it's cooking a dinner or a partnership or something of that nature. And those are all legal transactions that, you know, have terms that need to be evaluated and negotiated over. And I mean, chefs just don't have the knowledge to do that. What are your thoughts on trademarks? So I hired a lawyer uh, a couple of years ago and got Chefs Without Restaurants trademarked. Now, you know, especially my audience, so many of them are in food media and doing that. How important is trademarking your brand if you want to do media projects and things of that nature? I think if you're getting into media projects, it's more important, you know, you know, as a standalone restaurant, unless you have a franchise or, you know, an extremely powerful brand to protect, not that, not all that important, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're getting advertising revenue and, you know, you're out there in the digital media space, much more important. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be a really viable income stream for so many people these days and it continues to grow. I mean, there's a lot of people who've actually just left restaurant cooking and are exclusively doing internet content and making a pretty good living from what I understand on it. I mean, you have to get, you know, you have to get a pretty decent following to make it a full-time career, but it's at least some good side money, you know, uh, depending on how much of it you're, you're doing. Yeah. I mean, if you can monetize a large YouTube or Instagram following, you could easily, you know, match or surpass the amount of money you could earn as a restaurant chef, I would imagine. So when are you looking to roll all this out? Or have you started already? Yeah, it's sort of a slow, evolving process. Um, my firm is open for business. My social media is just starting to roll out some of the announcements. And this week, I have like some content planned. And from going, you know, here going forward, you're going to see a lot more content on my Instagram. If you happen to follow, want to be one of the 900 people that already follow me. And so I'm, yeah, I'm going to be jacking up my visibility over the next month to a point where 
uh, people hopefully will be annoyed by my presence. <laughs> well, I don't know that anyone would be annoyed by your presence, but yeah, yeah, it'll be good to see that out there. So, you know, never say never, but are you done with restaurant cooking? No, a part of the reason why I, as I said earlier, I went, I went from college, high school to college to law school. I was extremely immature when I started practicing law and it wasn't until I started cooking on the line and managing that I felt like I really had developed a series of ways that I conducted myself in a quote unquote professional manner. And hospitality just kind of raised me and <laughs> I still look at a kitchen. I still like look on Instagram and I see all my colleagues in the restaurant world or that still have restaurant jobs cooking and posting beautiful things and talking about it. And I want to be out there doing those things too. Um, this is a really long winded way of saying that I felt like I was never going to become financially independent working as a, as a chef. And I became a chef because I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted my own restaurant or my own business of some kind, whatever it looked like. And I realized that, you know, I was basically going to need to put another five years in on the line or, you know, as a rest, in a restaurant while I basically begged, borrowed, and stealed enough, stole enough money to, to start a, a restaurant. Or I could start practicing law again, become financially independent in a much shorter amount of time, and then start to think about a business for myself back in the restaurant and food world. Yeah, it's a tough life for sure, both working in it uh, and having your own business. And you know, they say don't turn your passion into your job. I mean, I think if you start a career, it should be something you're passionate about. But you know, it's like, I moved up in the food world, and I was cooking less and less. And it's like, I got into the food world because I wanted to cook. And then it's like, well, how do I uh, cook more? And I was like, oh, start my own business. But then that's a different hamster wheel. Like, now I've left a job to start my own business so I can cook what I want. But the reality is having your own business, I also had to do all the admin tasks and stuff that I didn't really like doing when I worked in someone else's place. So I don't know, it's kind of like a never ending cycle. Yeah, it's definitely a catch 22. Yeah, which is why, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with this, what the advice is like, don't get in the restaurant business. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I just I, I realized about myself that I was never going to be happy. I, I didn't necessarily know it was going to make me happy, but I knew I was never going to be happy taking orders from someone else on a daily basis. Um, and I knew I wanted my own restaurant or my own spot of some sort. And that's very difficult to happen, to make happen as an independent restaurateur with, you know, unless you're independently wealthy. And so there are plenty of people that are not like that, that um, are happy to be worker bees both in the legal world, in the food world, I think across any industry, uh, I just realized about myself, I'm not one of them. And if you try to make me do it, I will become very unhappy very quickly and make the people around me unhappy as well. So from a cooking perspective, what's your style and where do you find inspiration? I kind of came up from this like American South inspired cuisine, lots of pork, lots of like, lake fish and lots of farm grown vegetables and like a, a lot of pork fat. <laughs> and when I got here, that was, you know, down in 
Greenville. And when I got here, you know, working for Jeremiah Langhorn at the Dabney, uh, it was more of that. And that's why I got, why I took the job in the first place. It was familiar to me and the food was excellent and he was cooking extremely high level. From there, I kind of developed uh, more of this, you know, I was working for Brad Boy at Blue Duck Tavern and he has this fermentation forward kind of wacky style. And so I picked up a good amount of that. And as a proud fourth generation Italian American gentleman from New Jersey, you know, my love of bagels, pizzas, meatballs, pasta, anything with tomatoes in it. I hate to be to like live up to a stereotype, but you know, that's the food that makes me very comforted. And uh, I also love to cook that food for the same reason. So I guess you could say I have this good mix of American Southern, French, and Italian American. Um, and what gets me excited? I mean, I'm, I love to travel. Um, it's probably thing, you know, if I do have like a, a core passion that I'll uh, so far has never like sucked my energy away and has always, you know, made me feel vibrant and full of life. It's traveling, and it's cool because. I get to see, th- I mean, like, I feel like you go on Instagram for inspiration. You're being inspired by the same thing that's inspiring every single chef. That's why everyone cooks ramp pasta in the spring. It's why, you know, everyone's going to have some kind of lamb dish on the menu right now. We're going to see a bunch of dishes with peaches in it, like, next week or something like that. And that's exciting and fun. But when you're traveling, there's no one, you know, looking over your shoulder working from the same source material. And that is, to me, is like exalting. Yeah, there's no hidden treasures in the food world anymore. I mean, maybe there are, but it seems like once that one thing is out there and someone snaps a photo and puts it on the internet, uh, then everyone's going to be copying it. Yes, I'm certainly guilty of it. I mean, you know, I see chefs putting burgers on Instagram and I'm like, I want to make the best burger ever now. Oh, yeah. Like kimchi lebna toast is amazing, right? But uh, I think there's a place in DC that makes it and I've had it a couple times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, you know, it's before the internet, it used to be so hard. And now it's so easy. And it's, again, another one of those things that there's benefits um, and negatives from but it's like now the whole world, uh, things you've never seen before, you know, just take places like Copenhagen, like, I don't know. Nobody knew what people were eating in Copenhagen, and now it's a hot spot. Like, whoever would have thought that Copenhagen would be one of the hot culinary spots in the world? A place that most people have never even been to. Yeah, I mean, and I don't mean to be insulting when I say this, but like, you know, they become famous for, it seems to me, like, you know, putting moss on a plate, something like that. It's like, not only has, as you said, has anyone ever been to Copenhagen, but it's not like, you know, everyone here in the States is like, oh, that danish beef is like the best in the world i gotta get my hands on it you know like italians sell parmesan around the world you know the entire world knows what sushi is copenhagen not so sure yeah do you have any go-to pantry staples like what do you always have on hand that you like cooking with you know just around the house um several different kinds of soy sauce i try to keep like three or four different kinds at a time for I don't know. I worked with a a Filipino guy, Paolo Dunka, on my last cooking job, and I was working for a Taiwanese, Belgian American chef, Eric Renner Yang, and 
you know, as as a, a white dude, I you know, I thought soy sauce or soy sauce, and seeing how it's cooked with up close and recognizing the nuance and that there are soy sauces of varying, you know, salinity, texture, um, and each of them has a different use. And, you know, using them together can produce results and using one of them by itself. I am by nature, as I think most chefs are, an extremely lazy home cook. So being able to really get a ton of flavor out of a shelf-stable product like soy sauce and you know, being able to do it very quickly. It just, it's like the foundation of a lot of meals that me and my partner eat in our home, just because it's quick, it's inexpensive and the results are fantastic. And I felt like when, you know, I've been taught the nuance of how to deploy it and use it. I'm not saying by any means I'm good at it, but better than I was, I feel like the results I get are that much better. Well, that's intriguing to me because I don't know enough about soy sauce either. And I find it intimidating. Like you go to a regular grocery store like Wegmans, they have like Kiko Mon and Wegmans brand soy sauce, right? But then I go to H Mart and they have hundreds of types and many of them are not even in English. It's like, I don't even know where to start. Like just pluck a bottle off the shelf, I guess, and try it. I don't know. I mean, Serious Eats is like has some good resources on the different ones. Um, there's an, I know I'm thinking of an article they have that like kind of breaks down some of the the regional variations, but DC has a extremely talented community of Asian, South Asian and Southeast Asian chefs. And I've learned a lot from them. And so, I mean, I was going to say, find yourself a chef to take you to the grocery store if you have one in your orbit. Yeah, I mean, Paulo really, I, I had no knowledge of Filipino cooking whatsoever. I had very limited knowledge of Asian cooking, period. The coconut vinegar, he introduced me to, I think it's a, I don't know if it's cane vinegar or sweet potato vinegar. I think it's cane vinegar. And uh, Filipino jellies. I think I'm going to have to go to H Mart today after this conversation. Yes. <laughs> So what haven't we gotten into that you want to share with our listeners before we get out of here today? I think what we all see on Instagram and in the restaurants in the cities that we're working in is that restaurants are figuring out that their staff are not coming back and new staff aren't going to be coming. And I think they're figuring out why. And I'm hopeful that they're actually responding by increasing hourly wages and, you know, they're offering benefits and, you know, there's some expanding recognition that this isn't necessarily just an issue of hourly pay, um, but it in like overall sustainability as a career, you know, can you have a job in the hospitality industry and can you raise children? You know, I think a lot of people are asking that question and, figuring out the answer or at least finally accepting the answer. I mean, these problems existed long before the pandemic, but the pandemic certainly exaggerated them. That's why I think the whole $300 a week extra is bullshit because you couldn't find good cooks before the pandemic even started. So I'm hopeful that, you know, restaurants, the culture may actually be starting to change. I had some, you know, glimmer of hope for the first, I don't know, six to eight months of the pandemic where you saw lots of clients coming out that seemed extremely supportive, that were, you know, over tipping, that were verbally very appreciative, that, 
you know, went onto social media and kind of amplified a lot of restaurants' messages and their their media and their marketing. Unfortunately, I feel like it was short-lived. The other side of the coin we've seen for the last six to eight months, and I can't help but wonder how much of it was virtue signaling. You know, now that we're back to in-person, it just seems terrifying for, you know, on the, on the guest end, essentially, that, that goodwill doesn't seem to be there. I imagine it's still, you know, a poignant reminder to many hourly workers as to why they were struggling or, you know, they had these concerns in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, dark times ahead, but, you know, I think the destructive forces that were unleashed by the pandemic are going to force a lot of places out of business that probably shouldn't have been in business. And that's really cold hearted to say, but it, I think it's going to open up some room for some serious culture changes. And as you said, they do have to start at the top. I mean, every restaurant I've ever worked in has had some of the elements of toxicity that you see, you know, publicized every day. I'm guilty of doing it. Like I was a terrible manager for, you know, I, I think back now I'm, I was trying my hardest. I certainly wasn't attempting to go out and be a terrible manager. And I wasn't trying to, you know, become complacent uh, and stay that way and, and not grow. But when you're cooking and you're managing, you know, direct reports and, and maybe because the front of the house manager isn't there for the day, you're managing the front of the house as well. And then you have to do inventory and you have to maintain vendor relations and make sure they get paid that day because maybe your accountant didn't send the check. I mean, uh, when you're getting pulled in a thousand different directions like that, it's extremely difficult for, for anyone to manage properly under those circumstances. Yeah. I've been there as well. I, I actually had said like, I could not continue working where I was and be happy of the person that I was. And that's when I knew it was time to leave. Like when you're made to make decisions that you morally don't agree with. It's like, this is when I need to move on. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed having you. Chris, thank you so much for letting me ramble. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be great. And I can't wait to share all this information with everyone. So I'll link up all your uh, links in the show notes and people will be able to find you and hopefully take advantage of the services you're offering. Thank you, Chris. That would be great. And to all our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.